Hi, welcome to Over the Page, the Vale of Glamorgan podcast. If you don't know where the Vale of Glamorgan is, it's the nice bit between Cardiff and Bridgend. And I'm joined by Ben. Hello, Julian. Um, and unfortunately, Chris can't be with us today. Um, so uh, it's just us. Well, you know, <laughs> <laughs> as much as I'm sure we'll miss Chris, um, you know, it's uh, it's always, always nice to see you. The boss is away so we can play. Exactly. So, Julia, tell me, what have you been up to uh, since the last episode? Well, I caught up with one of our volunteers. Uh, there's a number of libraries in the Vale, and some of them are staffed by um, volunteers. And I've caught up with Mabley, who has written a book. Oh, that's so exciting. We, yeah, exactly, exactly. So we, um, they sent me off to have a little chat with her just to find out what the book's about, why she wrote it. So um, I've recorded it all up, and here it is. Excellent. I'm joined by Mabley, who is a library volunteer at Sully Library. So hello and welcome, Mabley. So you've written the book, Shocking Capers. It's quite a nice play on words. And it's, an, <laughs> it's a little autobiographical look at your childhood, really. Uh, it says on the back, it says it's a warm-hearted fusion of autobiography and ethnography. It brings to life in vivid detail Sicily's peculiar truce between the old ways and the new, written with respect, a touch of humour, and the author shares her observations through infant eyes into womanhood as she reflects on visiting her transnational family and the serendipitous encounters along the way. So what inspired you to write the book? It was something that had been some of the memories and observations have been swimming around for, well, most of my life since it happened, especially in, in the last 10 years or so. It was one of those things that you sort of have on your to-do list that sort of percolates some of these memories. And it, it never quite rose to the surface, but then it was in February last year, 2020, I had a phone call out of the blue from an old neighbour, three doors up from my grandparents in Narrow, in the village where it sat. And uh, he's 99, deaf as a doorpost, and he had just found a photo of me riding his mule when I was 10 years old down to the farms, which we did in the summer. And he rang me to say, when are you coming to see me? And the trouble is, he was so deaf, he couldn't hear my response. <laughs> and I panicked. I thought, my goodness, he's really ill. You know, he's 99. He's not going to last much longer. And I adore this man, Pepe. He, he and his, his wife died a couple of years ago. So I went <laughs> oh. <laughs> I got the quick, the soonest flight I could get, and it was a big, uh, bit of a rigmarole because you've got to get for me. I don't drive, so I had to get to, to Cardiff, to Bristol, and then to Catania. Then I had to get a bus from Catania to Canacati, and then I had to get my cousin to come and pick me up and get me to the village. So this was a massive undertaking, but I did get to see him. <laughs> That's lovely. It was absolutely wonderful, and I got to see, you know, save my aunt, and then. We turned on the news and they announced lockdown. They announced this virus that in England and Britain we hadn't really been talking about. And so everything was cut short. But I went, I'd, I'd gone. And so when I got back, I was in such, um, I think I was a bit traumatized by suddenly being <laughs> shoved home the day before lockdown. I got out just in time. And um, I got home and 
it was all it all just came together and it was so organic it wasn't like i sat down and thought okay i'm going to invent a new way of writing ethnographic memoir i didn't have an audience in mind i didn't have a particular goal in mind it was almost as if the stories forced themselves i didn't really edit when it was done it was done uh-huh. So it's some, three of them I had actually pretty much written 10 years ago, and I didn't really change them. And it was furious. It was just this furious writing. Uh-huh. I mean, and they it, are tiny. Um, they're really tiny, lovely, like little windows onto another world, actually, um, really. In all ways, geographically, in time, um, in attitude. Um, they're just tiny little windows onto this, this other world, which is kind of still there, really. In a way, but there, I mean, it has changed. There have been some progressions, especially in terms of women's rights. But yeah, the essence is still there, especially in the older villages where there aren't so many young people and the traditions still very much hold. Yeah, and my village is like that because it's up a hill and it's really only one road in and one road out. And you don't go there. To, you don't pass through it to go anywhere. So it's, it really is stuck in time. It is. Yeah. yeah. I really enjoyed reading the book and, and looking at these little snippets of life, if you like. So you obviously enjoyed writing the book. Or, I, did. Oh, I don't think, I didn't have a choice. It was, um, I mean, I've been writing for, on and off for years, not much in the last 10 years, but most, most of my other writing many years ago is all very sort of um, serious academic. You are used to writing more academic publications. Right. So, but um, writing is part of you, but this is a very different type of thing. This was something completely personal, and I made a very conscious decision not to analyse it, because my training as a folklorist and ethnographist has always been you identify your, your texts, whether it's you know, texts in the social science sense, and you identify and then you interpret it. And I purposely didn't because I made, I, that was the decision I made that no, this is sharing. I'm not going to judge it. Mm-hmm. I just need to share this. And, and this was, I suppose it was therapeutic for me in a way. And it was a joy. I think if I just tried to analyze it, it would have made it into a completely different beast and it would have become work. Yeah. Yeah. And that wasn't my intent. And I wanted to just celebrate my family. And because you know it's been a rocky road in my family, and I've just I have such joy from them, and I love them so dearly, and they're so accepting of me, and I'm a bit unconventional, <laughs> and don't fit the mould. Yeah. <laughs> they come across as traditional. I mean, that that's not derogatory, you know. They but they do. It's as they say, it's a it's a very it's a village steeped in tradition, and it is a you know it's a memoir. It's not it's not fictional. It's a memoir and not romanticized either really i have a i that was another thing too when i was especially it was one of the stories i think with the near drowning and i nearly left out the bit when i um my behavior wasn't good and i thought no that's not fair i have to put everything in there because you know got if you're going to tell a story maybe that's the folk person in you too if you're going to tell a story you've got to put the whole you know put the whole picture in and i, I thought got to be authentic Absolutely. So Absolutely. that was my, my goal as well, and not to self-edit. And also, and this leads into, maybe it's too early to bring this in, one of the other questions about being third person, is it all right to? Not sure. Mm-hmm. 
because I tried to do it in first person and I just couldn't. Okay. I just couldn't do it. And I and I and it also felt very sort of egoistic and arrogant to be me, me, me. I did this, I did that. And it wasn't about me. That was the point. It was about them. And it was my gift to their life and their culture and not to draw attention to myself, which is something I don't really like anyway. But it was also to do with the reclamation of that part of me and that part of my family and my Sicilian name and heritage. So I think by giving that distance, allowing that distance, it actually allowed me to watch it unfold and relive it. And then by the end of it, I felt like I owned it again. So I sort of integrated Uh myself back into my own story. One of the reasons I wrote the introduction was to, I realized that standing alone, it was just sort of floating and nobody would understand the context. And so the academic side of me did decide to, okay, let's adhere to some of the rules here. You sort of introduce the chapters, you explain your voice, your, your place in the story and all that sort of thing. So in the introduction, it's quite lengthy. I explain how my dad was the first immigrant of the family to come over and how he married an Inglaise, which is they call everybody in Britain, whether it doesn't matter where you're from. And when you go there, they call you American, no matter where you're from. (laughs) English. But so, and then there's also, I mean, I could have included some stories about the subculture in Basingstoke with the Italian community, but the Sicilian community on the caravan site, and this is all gone now, but there was this sub-community and it was very warm. So I would say the first five years of my life, particularly, that was what I knew best was my, my grandparents and the Italian food and Italian ways, Italian language and that sort of thing. And then as my parents progressed and you know got better jobs and things like that, and we moved and sort of went up a bit, we moved it further away, and then also the family unit on the caravan side, they also got better jobs and houses and things and moved away, some of them to Germany. So that period was sort of frozen in time, but I had a longing, I suppose, because it, for me that was actually quite a happy time and it was stable, and it was good for me to harken back to that and sort of join it back up to the present. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it was to honour my granddad, my norma, because I absolutely adored him. So... To answer the question about immigration and my family, so my dad is full, well, he's dead now, but he's full blood Sicilian from the village. My mum is just a Brit. Her mother, actually, Scottish ancestry. And we moved to Wales when I was 15, and my new friends adopted me. And I really find it hard to identify as English. I don't identify as English at all. I don't know why, because my heart and life has been in Wales, even when I was in the States for 23 years, home was always Wales. So it is a sort of triangle, I suppose, transnational community. Yeah. So would you recommend the writing process as a way of um, I don't know, joining up all your dots? Was it, was it, you said it was a way of understanding your past and, and bringing it all together? Yeah, and it, the thing is, it did, it did. And I also say that when it finished itself, it was as if all the dots that were out there had been brought in and joined up, but it wasn't something I thought about ahead of time. It wasn't, like I said, I hadn't planned it. Yeah. It just all sort of fused in. And I do think that because I had been around writing and research and ethnography and learned how to marginalise myself to do fieldwork and things for all those years, that all those skills 
an experience, if you want to call it that, sort of organically just worked. Mm-hmm. And so it, I didn't need to be conscious about it. Yeah. And, and it was exhausting. It was like a fury. It absolutely was like a fury. And even when I went to go, I'd go out for a run or a walk in the morning, and I'd have to take pencil and paper with me. And I'd be running along, and I'd suddenly stop it. Oh, oh, I've got to write that down. And <laughs> I kind of might know the answer to the next question then. I was going to say, are you going to write um, more? Because I, it left me personally wanting more. Really? Um, there are, I have a few other books in me, but that one took me 10 years. So I can't force it. And actually, after this one, some, you know, because I've, I've lived a very unconventional life. And I lived in Alaska, for instance. And so I did actually type up all my Alaskan diaries. But it just didn't come. It didn't come. And so maybe it's ruminating, percolating, and in a few years' time it will sort itself out. But I know better than to force it. Mm -hmm. So so I don't think I'm actually naturally a writer. I think I'm a much better editor. (laughs) It's much easier, isn't it, to manage somebody else's work. Yes, it is. So do you feel more at home with your multiple cultural identities after having written a book? The short answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> and in a sense, it's a relief. Because yeah. I struggled for years, and I'm sure lots of people can identify with this. And I don't think it's anybody's fault particularly, but it is a bit confusing growing up with, within different cultures. And there is a bit of a pull because they don't always, especially at that time, there wasn't quite so much understanding and not so much, not that they weren't tolerant, but a bit more judgment and a bit more, I think people were more fixed in what their ideas of norms and behaviours were. And I think it's important to understand that we all belong to multiple groups, whether it's cultural, social, educational, familial, whatever. So the first, um, I think what I wanted to get at with the code switching is that even if you don't leave your village or your town your whole life, you're still going to experience multiple groups and you're still going to have to manage going back and forth. But it's usually seamless, isn't it? So you're in your family, that's your first group, you go to school, it's another group, and you quickly learn the norms and behaviours and the language, yeah. gestures and things, and you learn to integrate. And if you don't, you don't feel you don't fit in. And so you can always sort of sit on the margins, can't you? So one of the best ways to enculturate into a new group is to quickly learn the norms of that group. And even when we travel, you go to another culture and you either you can stay in your own group and not really fit in and just talk very loudly in English at the waiters, or you can sort of watch and observe and try and do as in Rome, as they say. In a way, having had multiple cultural groups, it's actually a gift to someone like me who then uh, becoming an ethnographer, it was almost second nature. So it's sort of like in a blink of an eye, you get a pain and suddenly you're in another, mm-hmm. you put your British brain away and open up the other one. And it's quite, um, it's actually lovely. It's really, it's very rewarding. I find it um, exciting, exhilarating. And I'm always quite chuffed that if I get on, okay, (laughs) because it takes a few days for the language to come back. And uh, and I'm not fluent. And then also Sicilian dialect is quite different to Italian. So there's all sorts of different layers of um, code switching going on. And also 
not just between the cultures, but between the generations and between town and city, village and city, country, you know, rural, urban, all this sort of thing. But I think what happened with me is when we moved to Wales when I was 15, I should probably explain my dad died in 1988. My mum, actually they were already divorced, and my mum remarried. And so we really didn't have any contact with the Sicilians for a few years. Because divorce is a no-no, and so there's a bit of um, a lot of shame. Mm -hmm. So that part of me was put aside, and I embraced Welshness. So when we moved to Wales, I was quite happy when my new friends reprisoned me madly, and I got to live this new life, the new identity, and I could sort of reinvent my personality and my cultural norms and where I fit. Mm -hmm. And then... I didn't accept being Maria Theresa for many, many years. I didn't like being called that. Finally, writing a book and putting my name on it gave me the opportunity to re-embrace that, my heritage, and be proud of it. So it was very healing in, in that part of integrating. So that's you know, psychologically speaking. But it also was one of the reasons I had to use the names in the book. I think that's why as well I had to keep using the third person Maria uh-huh. Because it was part of the reclamation. Yeah. So yeah. now, now I feel I'm very proud. I'm not that I was not ever proud. I was always proud of my Sicilian heritage, but now I'm very keen to own it. I'm dying to go back. I was really interested in the book, your freedoms. So the freedoms that we take perhaps a little bit for granted, you know, as a woman growing up, it's so surprisingly patriarchal and misogynist. Restrictive, I was going to say. <laughs> um, and that is something you, I mean, it comes across that you absolutely, you know, to say struggled with, but, you know, it was a real, um, just against what you've grown up with. Well, when I was, even though I'm quite a timid person, I'm an adventurous person, but I'm not a combative person. I think when I was younger, in my teens and 20s, I was more resistant to it, a bit more rebellious. And as I got older, I was much more accepting because you can't fight it. You yeah. just sort of be cheeky back or something. And then I also understood as I was older that it isn't, yes, it is very controlling, but it's also a way of taking care. So if they hadn't have been so protective of me, it would have been neglectful. So I actually learned to embrace it and realise it was because they loved me. But I was going to ask you too about the title of the book. Is it the play on words? Is it? it is. Well, for me, so here's the thing. Me, I've been, I'm obsessed with wordplay and etymology and philology and onomastics and all these other things. And I think going back to, oh goodness, in the 90s when I studied journalism, I worked in a newspaper in Santa Barbara and I got obsessed with headlines. And of course, you've got the space restriction, haven't you? Yeah. And so it became my job to come up with witty plays on words. But not You don't want to overdo the alliteration. So maybe you find something metaphorical or, you know, that sort of thing. And also in academia, when you, you um, so if you've got a conference paper, you want it to be eye-catching. And so you usually have the, the title and then the subtitle. Yeah. And so it became a, a fine art, the fine art of titling papers, I suppose. So, and the funny thing was, until I got the title, I couldn't write it. No. I like that. I'm like that with other things too. I have to have the, even if it's a working title, once I'm happy with the title, I can organize and it just goes. So I did actually think about it. It was that the title probably had more thought 
than the book. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. <laughs> but I was thinking, hey, what am I doing? What are they? Are they capers? Are they, you know, and I came, I had the capers. I thought, okay, I can do that because I did literally spend so many summers shucking capers. <laughs> <laughs> and then I got it, and I was so proud of myself, and I don't know that everybody understands it, but I was happy with that. And I have to say that I had written The Small Stories from a Big Island as a subtitle before Bill Brighton. Because it was more than 10 years ago, I had that bit when I did the first stories. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I left it, I left it, because they thought they are small. <laughs> Um, and I was small. Um, yes. Yeah. So the title for me was um, Always Made Me Giggle. Lovely. Would you like to read us um, one of the stories from the book, please? The Welcome Taxi. Typical in pastoral village life, folks have more than one skill and several occupations as the agricultural year dictates. Thus, entrepreneurship and economic survival are synonymous. While it is customary for families to help each other, in turn, with farming chores and not uncommon for individuals to have supplementary incomes, one family and one family alone has the monopoly on taxis. Or to be more precise, ill taxi. The vehicle in question is rarely called upon to serve and spends most of its time parked in the shade of a, of a prized plum tree on the outer slopes of the village. But still, theoretically, the villagers can boast a taxi service and the taxi owner is afforded the prestige befitting a hypothetically successful small business owner. Villagers rarely have the resources or the occasion to call upon the taxi owner and his vehicle, but one excited Saturday morning in April, Bill Taxi was rolled out and dusted off and readied for an epic journey to the island's capital for Lermo, where it would collect an incoming family member arriving at Punta Raisa Airport some hundred miles distance to the north of the village in the province of Agrigento. Flying in from London's Heathrow Airport, Maria was the first to answer the family call. On learning that her Norna was gravely ill, she dropped everything and hopped on the next available flight out. After three and a half hours in the air, the aeroplane pirouetted around Palermo's dramatic and daunting shiny black volcanic pinnacles, landed miraculously on time and intact. Within minutes of disembarking, Maria was rushed by four dark-haired brown-eyed boy cousins. A split second, an equally dark-haired brown-eyed cousin joined the scrum. Amid the laughing and embracing, Maria spotted one uncle, then another uncle, clearly an all-out reception party. Swept along amid back-slapping and polyphonic chatter, Maria soon found herself standing in front of a well-kept but ancient automobile beside which an unfamiliar man smiled and gesticulated, opening and closing the car's two heavy doors as if demonstrating a prototype Lamborghini. Meanwhile, while honoured and a little overwhelmed by the welcome, Maria stared in disbelief at the excessive number of bodies and the correspondingly small size of the car. In due course, Maria's compact suitcase was deposited in the otherwise vacant boot, and after several minutes of head-scratching and door-posturing, four fully-grown adults and five fidgety children piled in on top of each other, seemingly unconcerned with spatial issues. They simply sucked in their breath, confident that they would be reinflated at the journey's end. Maria knew it would be inappropriate to suggest that they could have taken a headcount before leaving the village that morning, or that they could have perhaps allowed for the additional body on the return trip. After all, it wasn't just about the family getting its money's worth. The sense of occasion clearly trumped. By evening, the taxi rolled into the village, making its way along winding cobbled streets more accustomed to clippity-cloppity mules' hooves than rolling automobile tyres. Maria and her welcoming party were greeted like returning heroes having accomplished a dangerous covert mission. 
But they soon revived. Their breath was quickly sucked back out of them when they heard the news that Norna had that same day been moved to a hospital in Palermo. Thank you to you now, Mabli, for uh, sharing your book with us today. Um, and uh, I look forward. <laughs> I look forward to the next one. <laughs> so that was interesting. Um, I particularly liked the idea of, of writing as a means of processing your own history and maybe, you know, coming to a better understanding of yourself. It felt yeah. like that's what she was doing. I think, um, I mean, obviously I can't speak for her, but um, I certainly got that impression when I spoke to her too. Um, and I think um, it's a very cathartic and very therapeutic exercise to terms with um with her past and how different it was um and how different her growing up was um certainly wasn't growing up in a digital age and certainly wouldn't be um she wouldn't be sat at home listening to podcasts would she she certainly wouldn't i mean it's it's it, it really did feel like a an, another world that she that she <laughs> you're young ben <laughs> <laughs> but i mean coming from a very traditional um community like the one that she was born into and then I think um, it must have been uh, a real kind of I mean it's a it would be a quantum leap into the into the society that we're used to today but I think it it was obviously um, very different the 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 kind of the uh, the world that she stepped into in um, in in Britain at the time yeah definitely definitely um, and yeah it took a I guess it took her a, a while to find a place. So if you like the podcast, um, don't forget to hit the like button and share us with your friends and family. Thanks very much. And we'll uh, we'll catch you next time. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye bye.